0: A Kawasaki-like disease called multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children is an emerging complication during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm joined today by ASN Treasurer Keisha Gibson. Dr. Gibson is Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics and Chief of Pediatric Nephrology in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is also the Vice Chair of Diversity and Inclusion for the Department of Medicine. Keisha, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, what is Kawasaki disease, also known as Kawasaki
1: syndrome? So Kawasaki disease is um, actually a pretty rare um, inflammatory syndrome that uh, many of us in pediatrics have seen, um, primarily when we're working in general pediatrics. Um, this is classified as a vasculitis and in kidneyland, I think that m- many of us are more familiar with the vasculitis syndromes that affect small blood vessels like anca vasculitis and um, and, and IgA vasculitis, um, but this is a disease that affects medium-sized blood vessels. Um, it's typically really found in children that are less than five years of age, so um, a condition that is found in the very young. Um, we don't understand a lot about what triggers it. Um, there are some theories that potentially there um, could be some infections um, that might trigger it in children. There are some other theories that it may be more of an autoimmune process. Um, possibly driven by some kind of autoantibody yet to be identified, Um, but for most children, thankfully, um, it is a condition that um, can be successfully treated, usually with some IVIG and aspirin. Um, In its mildest forms, uh, we see this systemic milieu of uh, prolonged fever for more than five days, swollen lymph nodes, a rash that can affect the trunk of the body, but in particular, the um, palms and soles of the hands. After a few, after several, or after a week or so, we may notice some desquamation of, of the of the um, hands and the feet. Um, and in this worst or more severe forms, um, affecting uh, the coronary arteries, which can be a very uh, scary sequela. Again, most of these children do recover, um, but there are some that can certainly um, experience some. Chronic um, long term damage due to the coronary findings.
0: And, and how does multi system inflammatory syndrome in children differ from Kawasaki disease?
1: This is a big question that's on um, many of our minds. Uh, I think that the early identification of the similarities between the syndrome is really related to the clinical presentation. Uh, these children that are presenting with um, what we think is this COVID related multisystem um, inflammatory disease, um, come in um, with prolonged fevers, uh, oftentimes skin rashes uh, that appear very similar to what we would expect in a vasculitis-type picture. Um, they could have lymphadenopathy, and um, certainly quite a few of them um, have presented with hypotension, and we've found some of these coronary artery findings. And so because of that, um, there obviously is a tendency to draw um, a lot of similarities between the two conditions. Um, and in the children that have been the most impacted, we certainly are approaching their treatment um, similarly to how we would a Kawasaki um, patient with IVIG. Um, there are some children that, of course, are having significant clinical manifestations that are critically ill, and we've um, had to step up our therapy to a more of an auto, um to uh, To treat them um, aggressively from an inflammatory standpoint, and some of these children are re- receiving things like um, anakinra, which is um, an um, interleukin-1 receptor antagonist, um, but that is really reserved for these, you know, very severe pictures because, again, there's a lot that we don't understand. Um, we certainly see that um, there is a large percentage of these children that clearly um, have uh, COVID-19 viral titers that can be measured. Um, there's some that we are been, we've are we been able to demonstrate antibodies, demonstrating that they have had um, COVID exposure. But there is a percentage of these children that have no evidence of um, COVID exposure. And so because of that, um, we are definitely still in an area where there's a lot to um, to be investigated.
0: So what advice would you have for parents during the current pandemic?
1: That is really the million-dollar question. You know, I, at the end of the day, I really encourage the parents that I speak to, to trust their internal barometer and their thermometer. Um, we want to make sure that the things that are in our control, we take control. Um, you want to limit your potential exposures. Um, we want to wear, we want you to wear masks and your children to wear masks if you're in public. We want you to uh, follow the CDC guidelines, the social distancing. At some point, we're going to have to figure out how to uh, reopen our community um, as safely as possible Um, and, again, take control of the factors that we can control. Um, At the end of the day, the majority of children that are uh, getting sick from COVID um, have done well. Um, At this point, uh, children make up about 1% to 5%, depending on whatever series you look at of those that are testing positive uh, for COVID-19. We really want to look at that data with the appropriate um, lens, however, because we don't know what the denominator is. Um, There's a lot of testing that has not been done. Um, And really and truly the children that are getting tested are the ones that are presenting um, with symptoms. Um, And by and large, a lot of children um, don't have symptoms, which uh, also speaks to the importance of making sure that we, these important protective measures of keeping masks on them because you don't know if they're infected and we don't want them bringing that infection home to um, family members that may be more susceptible to uh, poor outcomes. Um, so at the end of the day, I you know, do think that um, families need to maintain uh, some vigilance in making sure that they are employing the same protective measures for their children that they would themselves and that they would their uh, elderly uh, family members and friends and try to decrease uh, even the asymptomatic spread that we're seeing in the community.
0: So as you kind of think through the next couple of months, you know, starting with this summer into the fall and then the sort of first part of next year, what's your best guess as to how you think COVID-19 will manifest in, the, in, in your patient population of, of children?
1: That is a great question. Um, I wish my crystal ball was um, a little clearer Um, I do have some concerns. I worry um, as we move out of the warm months and move into the colder um, flu and cold season um, that we may see um, an uptick again in the amount of people that are infected. Um, I do worry that as time goes on, there's this desensitization, I think, that happens um, with individuals. And certainly there are large pockets of our society that just have not been personally impacted. Um, by this pandemic and so sometimes it's hard uh, to maintain the same level of vigilance um, for a fight when the enemy doesn't really seem to directly be impacting you. I think that as we get closer to uh, most schools opening up we have some schools that are now trying to figure it out figure out because they are on a a year-round schedule Um, and how do you employ social distancing measures um, when our schools are already overcrowded. I think this is a critically important question, and every state is grappling, and every county for that matter, on how to best deal with this. Um, I think that we have to make the plans to be able to move forward with having the expectation of things getting better and the curve flattening, Um, but we have to be um, very reasonable in having contingency plans. Um, I think that we have to prepare ourselves for the reality that it may not be that, it's safe for all of our children um, to come back to school and whether or not it's because of their direct health. We, um, matter of fact, um, about a week or two ago, um, there uh, was a study pub- published in Lancet um, from our pediatric nephrology um, um, cohorts around the, around the globe about our experience with COVID and children with kidney transplants and chronic kidney disease. And the good news is that overwhelmingly they did well. Um, You know, when we think about what's happened with um, some of the uh, people that have had really poor outcomes um, and this idea of um, a revving up of the immune system and sort of an inappropriate um, hyperimmune response, the answer has been to immunosuppress them. Well, a lot of our children with glomerular diseases or kidney transplants, um, other diseases um, that require immunosuppression, you know, could it be? And this is this is not found that we don't know um, whether or not it's helpful. I won't go that far. But what I will say is that the published experience gives us some comfort in seeing that those kids, even those kids, did well um, with handling um, the virus and and, and avoiding um, sort of the horrific mortality rates that we've seen.
0: You said you weren't going to speculate, but I, I have to ask the question. I mean, any best guess or any other literature that you've seen to try to explain that phenomenon? Because that's really interesting.
1: No, that's a great, that is, a, that is an opportunity, a wide open opportunity for research um, at this point. Um, all we can give you is what's been observed. And what's been observed um, is that the individuals that you would worry the most about from an outcome standpoint and related related to an infectious disease um, have not had outcomes that differ from, um, others who are not on immunosuppression. So I think that that's an opportunity for, for research. Um, and I think that as a pediatrician that's trying to give parents guidance, um, uh, when there's very little evidence based data, um, to drive what we do, um, is to at least provide them that some, somewhat of that comfort with knowing that overall ultimately, children tend to do well. Um, Again, we want to make sure that we're avoiding exposures. We want to limit the spread um, because even if it doesn't mean that these outcomes, that this exposure is going to directly impact them, we do worry about all the other people that surround them.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm struck as I'm listening to you and just thinking about schools and family dynamics and sort of the health of, of your individual children and then the rest of your family just the sheer number of factors that have to come into consideration here. Um, I guess I'm curious too, just as, as, I, as you think about your um, patient population and, and the, the types of diseases and, and syndromes that you normally treat, um, I'm just kind of curious if you could describe for us um, kind of your typical day or the, t- the types of things that, that you encounter from a, from a clinical perspective.
1: And I think one of the things that I enjoy the most um, about being a pediatric nephrologist is really the diversity in um, the ways that we get to interact with our families and the different conditions that we're helping them to manage. Um, on If you were to walk into my clinic and look at the patients I have, you may see a patient who is 8 years old and coming in with high blood pressure without an identifiable cause. Um, We take care of a lot of children that have um, conditions that many of my adult colleagues are very uh, used to seeing, things like FSGS, um, IgA, nephropathy, um, and other glomerular disorders. Um, We take care, if you were to look at the majority of children with advanced chronic kidney disease, um, the majority of these children are those that were born with congenital anomalies of the urinary um, tract. Um, so a myriad of different things causing um, problems with uh, urinary obstruction, vesicoureteral reflux, um, renal dysplasia, where they develop uh, uh, kidney disease over time. Um, so definitely a wide variety of um, of pathologies that we see in children. And so it is rare for you to find a pediatric nephrologist who doesn't have a, a wide portfolio. Um, and conditions that they've become very comfortable in managing.
0: You know, it's really interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it from this perspective before. But but as we consider the the federal mandate around advancing American kidney health, and a lot of the discussion we're currently having in terms of one of the goals is is increasing awareness of kidney diseases and reasserting the value of nephrology. A big piece of that is the relationship between nephrologists, both pediatric and adult nephrologists, and primary care. And I think a lot of the conversation to date has been very monolithic in terms of treating all primary care physicians similarly. And in listening to you, I realize that that can't be the case with pediatricians, that, that it's a very different conversation with pediatrics than it is, say, with internal medicine or family medicine um, and, and sort of how we delineate that. And I'm just curious if if you have any advice as to how best to engage with with what I'll call general pediatricians around um, some, you know, the the patient population and identifying who's at risk and, you know, the treatment strategies and then, of course, slowing progression of the disease.
1: Right. Um, It is definitely um, a challenge. Ultimately, when we look at just numbers, children make up a fraction right now of individuals that are suffering with advanced kidney disease or even in-stage kidney disease um, in this country. Um, having that said, the numbers are certainly growing. Um, so the way I kind of always keep it in the context for myself, um, you know, my daughter's, uh, the first high school that she was slated to go to has about 3,000 um, children. And based upon current data, that would mean at least six children in that high school um, are affected with um, um, advanced kidney disease um, or some or some form some form of kidney disease. Um, and so when I think about it from that direction, it helps me to understand that that's not zero. Um, and when you start looking at all the high schools and all the schools in the area, you can see how that number quickly grows. and then we think of the number of pediatric nephrologists that are available to help manage those children and think about how sparse we are throughout the country. I mean there are three countries in the United States right now that have zero pediatric nephrologists. Um, and so we have to rely on our general pediatric colleagues to help us with the management um, of these patients, because right now there's just not enough of us um, to make sure that all of these kids are getting their frequent um, attention that they need. Um, and so I think identifying ways, number one, helping them to make sure that they're helping us identify these children because oftentimes these diseases i'm going to take one in particular like renal dysplasia um, is something that can go under the radar for a long time but there are little clues along the way that there's something going on the kids aren't growing well we rely on for our glomerular diseases we rely on pediatricians at some interval getting a urinalysis to see if there's blood in the urine or protein in the urine um, right now, the recommendation from the, Ameri- um, from the American um, Pediatric Society is that every child starting at the age of three gets a yearly blood pressure measurement, um, and so it's helping our pediatricians to make sure that they have the support tools, guidance, with everything they need to help us identify these um, children as early as possible, um, get the ones that need to see us, in as quickly as possible. And then we have to work together to figure out how to continue um, continue to manage them. Um, Because like I said, there are a lot of states that are are very sparse when it comes to numbers of pediatric nephrologists. And the average patient seeing a pediatric nephrologist is traveling quite a distance to come see them. Um, And so trying to get that frequent routine care that they need um, is truly a burden. Um, And so any and every way that we can find a partner with our community pediatricians, um, is going to um, absolutely be beneficial.
0: So I'm really struck that, that there's a huge opportunity in terms of this federal mandate for advancing American kidney health related to both increasing awareness of kidney diseases, but also working directly with pediatrics um, to identify patients early and, and intervene um, and do everything we can to slow progression earlier you had you had mentioned or referenced um, one of the other five goals of the mandate which is around you know enhancing research discovery and innovation through you know NIH the kidney health initiative kidney acts and other other payers um, so you know just using covid-19 as an example there's there's a huge opportunity for you know what I'll call a short-term research agenda but then also a broader you know longer-term agenda um, what about the other three goals? So, so one of the goals is around you know shifting the focus from kidney failure to kidney health. Another was this idea of piloting innovative care delivery models through Medicare, which is which is obviously trickier with this patient population. And then the final goal of the five is increasing um, the rate of transplantation.
1: No, absolutely, those are all critically important um, points of um, the. Uh, Kidney um, Care Initiative, Um, you know, I think think of this in a few different pots. Um, One of them that you've already mentioned is um, payer coverage. Um, Currently, um, our PPS um, system fails to really meet um, what we need as pediatric nephrologists to fully take care of our patients. Part of the reason for that is that we are still in a position where we need appropriate evidence-based studies um to help us fully understand the real cost of taking care of a pediatric dialysis patient well, you know, understanding the extra needs that they have in regards to social work, um, in regards to just the clinical needs, having pediatric lines, for example, um, appropriate fluids, dietitian services, growth is a very important aspect of taking care of our patients. Um, there are lots of different factors that just haven't been formally measured. And so I think that that has to be a component that goes into helping us better understand the cost need. Um, We've already talked a little bit about the workforce issues, and you've already highlighted that as well, uh, which I put hand in hand with awareness of just how pervasive um, kidney disease um, has been. And it's not, this is not just an adult disease. Um, This is a disease that often has childhood origins. Um, And then, most importantly, innovation in making sure that you know any clinical trial that comes along, this uh, especially in, in rare diseases, we need to make sure that the inclusion of children is not an afterthought. We need to make sure that the inclusion of children is the goal with any with any clinical trial, um, therapeutics, um, uh, new equipment, innovations in dialysis. We need, to ne- we need to shift our thinking to making sure that inclusion of children is, is the goal rather than something that we come back to after the trial has, has ended. Um, and so things um, that we're seeing through kidney x has been absolutely um, instrumental in, in helping us to move this forward and to sort of move the needle um, in, in our thinking within this space.
0: So you ended on kidney X and you anticipated my final question, which is: if if you were, um, if you had the opportunity to to launch, and, and let's pretend that the money is not an issue, so the money's there, you could launch a a, a prize competition that would benefit um, children with either kidney disease, kidney failure, or with a kidney transplant. What what would your prize competition be? What would the overall sort of goal of the competition be
1: a couple of things that come to mind um we need innovation for sure in the dialysis space um we um we run into lots of issues in trying to adapt equipment that was uh, constructed for large um, individuals um, to tiny individuals that are you know no more than seven kilos rather than 70 kilos um, we need innovation in how I'm thinking about my my transplant patients, and I think this is something that not only would benefit children but adults as well. Um, innovation in um, how we're delivering our therapeutics. Uh, we, you know, I think that we appropriately focus on um, sort of the the physiology of the pharmaceuticals that we're um, that we're developing. We appropriately focus on safety and efficacy. What we don't focus on are ways to help improve um, adherence and ability to um, tolerate um, getting the medication in as directed so thinking about novel ways patches um, thinking about um, long releasing um, acting agents thinking you know other other ways of delivering um, therapeutics um, I think the diabetes world has done a tremendous job in, in really prioritizing uh, ways to um, help with the ease of patients um, being able to adhere to what's necessary um, to maintain their health. And I think that in the kidney space, we have opportunity um, to innovate in that regard.
0: Well, thanks, Keisha. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk today.
1: Thank you. appreciate being here.
0: This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug. Changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the American Society of Nephrology.